So we do a lot of weddings, me and Mitch. But I want to tell you a story this morning about our most favorite wedding in the 30-plus years we've been doing weddings. And it happened... um, 29 years ago. Right, 29 years ago. Uh, Our son was just a baby at the time. Um, Our two good friends, Ben and Joan... Um, Ben was the librarian in our little town in the Adirondacks, and um, he and Joan had been together for 15 years, and they had always been very proud that they did not need the state to tell them that they were a couple, thank you very much, right? We got that. Mm -hmm. But now they wanted to have a child, and for Joan to have health insurance, she needed to be married to Ben because his librarian benefits would not cover a domestic partner. So, one day, they went across the street to Norma, the town clerk, and got a wedding, a marriage license, and then came... At at the hardware store. At the hardware store. (laughs) This is a little town in the Adirondacks. And then came across the street and asked us if we would marry them. So, those of you who've been married by us know this. Usually when we do a wedding, we say to folks, well, you need three sessions of premarital counseling and da-da-da-da-da. Mitch does four. I do three. Um, But at that point, Ben and Joan had been together more years than we'd been married. And so we did some quick calculation, kind of glanced at each other and said, sure, we can marry you. And they said, tonight? And we glanced at each other and we said, okay, here's what you need. You need two witnesses and you need to write your wedding vows. Come back at 9 o'clock with your witnesses and your wedding vows, and we will marry you. So off they went. They called um, another couple that we were friends with, uh, Pete and Ellen, to be their witnesses. Pete and Ellen stopped on their way home from work and picked up a bottle of champagne. I made a pan of brownies to be the wedding cake. They showed up at 9 o'clock, and we married them in our living room. It was wonderful. What I remember of the wedding, though was how nervous they were. And we had had so many conversations about, it does not matter whether you're married or not, we don't need the state to, to bless us, but Ben, when he was saying his vows to Kate, paper, which she could, almost could not hold the paper still. Um, and we pronounced them husband and wife, and then we drank the champagne, and we ate the brownies, slash wedding cake, and had a marvelous evening together. The next day, I happened to see Ben at the library, and I was like, so how's married life? And he said, it's different. He said, I didn't think it would be different. We've been together for so long. We knew we were going to be together for life. It's different. And I said, yeah, it is. There's something about making that covenant that changes things, right? And we tell you this story because today we're going to do a Wesleyan covenant together, and so we want to say that it changes things. We're telling you this story about a a particular marriage covenant because we're inviting you to take part in another covenant this morning. For over 200 years, for over 250 years, 
The people called Methodists have taken the first Sunday of the year as an opportunity to make a new covenant, to renew our relationship with Jesus Christ and with each other. But we want to warn you as well as invite you, because we know that covenants change things. They change people. And so even if you've done this covenant for many, many years, and I know that some of you have, Each year, it's an opportunity once again to invite Jesus into our lives more completely than ever before. When we enter this covenant, it enters us. We pledge to be God's people and we pledge, and God pledges to be our God. It has a way of changing things, just like with Ben and Joan. So our scripture readings this morning are both about creation. They both start in the beginning, in the traditional English translations. And they're both also about covenant. God's covenant with us and God's longing for our covenanting in return. The the words of of Genesis 1 are filled with such sublime beauty, especially in the the, the King James. I I, I can't read the King James version of of Genesis 1 without hearing James Earl Jones going, In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And John 1 purposely echoes that same sublime beauty. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, but I love what John does, he he takes that big canvas of in the beginning, and then radically shrinks the focus down. A radical close-up. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some translations say moved into the neighborhood. The, the Greek original is a, a military term meaning to bivouac, to tent in the backyard. In Jesus... God didn't just invite us to a covenant as God did with Abraham or or carve a covenant on a tablet as God did with Moses. In Jesus, God enfleshes a covenant, embodies an unbreakable relationship with us to come to live among us as one of us. It's, it's amazing. Now everything is different. Something about God giving God's own self to us, to us vulnerable humans, in the form of the most vulnerable human form, an an infant 
human critter, it makes everything different. This Jesus who walked with us and taught us and lived with us and experienced us and was betrayed by us and went all the way to the cross for us, that changes everything. When we read those words, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That changes how we understand God. I think it changes how we understand ourselves as God's beloved people. It's what a covenant does. It makes a deep change. And John Wesley, who founded the United Methodist Movement, wrestled mightily with trying to be holy enough for God, finally came to the realization that there was no being holy enough that God's love comes as pure grace to all of us. And as he worked through what it meant to be human and to be faithful, he came to the idea of a covenant service as a way of saying publicly to oneself, to God, and to others, I commit myself to this life. <clears throat> he wrote it so that people could stay true over the long haul and asked the people who were called Methodist to make that covenant at the beginning of every year and then celebrate Holy Communion together. We now call it the Wesley Covenant Service. You probably <clears throat> just called it the Covenant Service. <laughs> One of the things that's unfortunate is if you look it up online to read the whole thing is that there's something called the Wesleyan Covenant Association, which is a right-wing breakaway group that's actually breaking covenant with the United Methodist Church. So but that's another story. That's another story. <laughs> but... You can find it online. You can find it in the, the United Methodist Book of Worship. It's a beautiful and, and really long service and one we really can't do the whole thing for on a snow day. Uh, but we're sharing today uh, the prayer that is the, the core of, of Wesley's service. We talked about this at Adult Forum a little bit this morning where we went through the whole service together. Over the years, folks have made some changes to the words of Wesley's covenant prayer, not to change the meaning, but rather to keep the meaning true as English has shifted and evolved over time. Mm -hmm. I believe that the sign of a really good covenant is that it stands the test of time and that specific words can be shifted as needed to reflect uh, the world that, you, that it's being said in now. And so we want to tell you three ways that the prayer that we're going to share this morning are different from Wesley's original form. And yet, in doing the changes of wording, we think it stays closer to the original purpose that Wesley was trying to accomplish. The first thing is, uh, as in most new Bible translations, the, the these and thys uh, have been changed to you and yours. It's not that these and thys are, are, are bad. I, I love them because the words thee and thy 
when they were used in the day uh, was the more personal pronoun. To denote thee and thy is what you shared with someone you were close with. I loved in the early, even into the early 20th century, Quaker, Quaker couples would still call each other the I love thee because that, they were staying true to the middle and early modern English form that was intimate. You, the word you was what you saved for a group or a social superior. It's equivalent to the French tu for informal and vous for plural and to uh, formal speak. But in late modern English, we've reversed that. The and thou sounds like formal, we only reserve it for kings or something. And you is what you call everyone. And so we are using you because that's what's more intimate now, but I kind of wish we could go back to having a special word for people we were close with. And if you want to use the and thy in the covenant service, you can. You could do that. The other piece is we've changed the pronouns and the nouns for God and humanity from exclusively masculine to a more uh, gender-inclusive form. So we don't talk about mankind, we talk about humanity. And this year we've made a third change because there's a line in the covenant prayer that says, put me to doing, put me to suffering. And every year I've said that it's made me wince. I don't believe that God sends suffering. And I don't believe that Wesley meant that God sends suffering. So I've always wrestled with that phrase. And then just this last week, we read that Wesley used the word suffer the same way that the King James Bible talks about suffering the children to come unto me. It's not about being in suffering. It's about tolerating or allowing or being with something. And so we really wrestled with what to do with the the word suffering, mm-hmm. you know, if, if long-suffering is translated as patience or forbearance, what does put me to suffering translate as? And it took us a while, and we were trying to contrast that with doing, and the word we came up with was bearing, as in bears all things, <clears throat> love bears all things. And so in the, the prayer that we're going to share this morning, it says, put me to doing, put me to bearing. And that, I wanted to explain that to those of you, especially those of you who have done this for a long time, because you're going to say, wait a minute, that's not, the, that's right not the right word. And again, if suffering is the word that you want to put there, feel free. Right? <clears throat> Both Genesis and John are about creation and covenant. But they're not looking at creation and covenant in a rearview mirror. It's not looking back. When we are in covenant with God, we are inviting, invited to be part of God's ongoing creation. We sang this morning, morning has broken. Every morning is a new creation. Every moment is a new possibility for living out the grace of God that we've met 
in Jesus Christ. Every day in covenant with God is a possibility of co-creating with God a brighter tomorrow that looks a little bit more like the kingdom that Jesus came to announce. So I invite you to the awesome job of being co-creators, co-covenanters with the God who loves us beyond all imagining. We're going to sing hymn 2120 in the black hymnal, kind of a preparation hymn, and then we'll share in the Wesley Covenant prayer and go on to communion from there.